right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's, uh, I was seated uh, back there, and it was such a beautiful moment of just hearing all the voices just singing to this God. The logistics were not big. We just had a guitar and a cajon, but a voice is coming out of here. Good job, worship team. But then the whole, hearing the whole church was just beautiful. It was a glimpse of heaven there. And that's, that's, that's part of our hope. One day we will be together. And we'll be singing in heaven, worshiping this God for everything that he has done. The God who was and the God who is to come. And he will come and we'll be together with him. That was just a beautiful time. And I hope that um, was a time where we prepared our hearts and our minds for what God, is, um, for what God wants to tell us this morning. Today we are finishing our ser series on Summer of Parables, and so today is our fifth and last parable of the series, but definitely uh, there are way more parables in the Bible. There's over 35 parables that you can find uh, in the Bible that Jesus taught across the, the four Gospels. So, just an idea, why don't you, for the rest of the summer, um, choose a parable a day? Keep the doctor away and enrich your devotional time like that. And you go through the parables and you dive deep into one of them. Because each parables are very, very rich with meaning. And when Reuben started this, um, this series, he, he said he defined the parables that Jesus taught as Jesus was using earthly things as metaphors, as images of heavenly realities. Jesus was using the day-to-day -day images so people could relate, but Jesus was talking about heavenly realities. And we can, as we dive deep into each parable, we can understand that journey has the peeling of an onion and the different layers. So maybe the first layer we find, we can call it the, the entertaining uh, layer or the story. Um, the plot of the parable might be uh, an adventure, might be a big plot or a, a small plot, but there's, there's a story about it and we, we look at that first layer. But as we dive deep and we, as we understand, there's a second layer with um, ethical examples. Patterns for life on how a citizen of the kingdom is supposed to act. That's one of the layers, one of the purposes of, that par of the parables that Jesus taught. But we don't just, um, we don't stop there and we go to a third layer. And on the third layer, we can encounter revelations of the secrets of the kingdom of God. In other words, theology, the knowledge of God. What does this parable tell us about the character of God? And there's another layer. Not all parables have... Uh, all these uh, layers, but there's still a fourth layer that give us uh, also a bit of a hint of the, the character of Jesus, points out to Jesus. And in fancy words, they, they call it Christology, the knowledge of Christ. And as a, a good fresh onion should do, as you get there in the, into the deep, into the fourth layer, by this time your eyes should be bursting into tears. Because you are understanding the depth of it. So I just gave you a parable. The parable of the onion, if you want to call it like that. 
but you see it's, a, it's, it's, it's an image of something, and hopefully next time you cut an onion, you remember parable, <laughs> or you think about it. But it's an image that helps you to associate with other meanings. And Jesus did the same in order for the people that were hearing in that time to glue those teachings to their mind. But 2,000 years after, as we are here, in order for us to also understand the, to the fullest the meaning of, that, of those parables, we have an additional challenge. Because we live 2,000 years um, after, Jesus was a Jew living in, in, the, in Jewish territory, occupied by Romans. They had their context. They had their culture. And things were very different back then from what they are now. So we have an additional effort to, um, to translate or to understand what it meant, those words or those expressions or the image that Jesus used. What, how, what do they mean to us during this time? Because honestly, we can, um, we can spoil a bit of that meaning with our modern um, um, stereotypes, with the way we see the world today, but which was not exactly the way they would see the world back then. So that's, that's an exercise that I want to, to bring this morning as we, we dive deep into this parable. So today, we are looking at a very famous parable. If you're a Christian for some time, you have probably have heard it probably once a year at least. Um, or, uh, or maybe you just heard in an expression that became culturally ingrained when someone does something good to someone else, you say, oh, he, were, he acted or she acted like a good Samaritan, right? So today we are diving into the parable of the good Samaritan. And as I was preparing this parable, I thought, yes, this is a very known parable. I'm sure uh, the majority of you have, have, have heard, have, have, have studied, and uh, the majority of you has something to say about it as well. So... This morning, um, the sermon will be, um, the sermon time will be slightly different because I want, as we are a church, as we came together, I don't want just this to be a time where, where we come and we, we, we hear and we process while we are here, but then we go home. But I want us to, to process this a little bit together. So how will this uh, go? And I hope, hopefully I will explain the logistics uh, easily. I will divide you into five different groups, around 10 people each group. And each group will have um, a leader or a facilitator, someone that will just help to uh, read the passage together and has a few questions and will just help the group to go through the questions. And in those 20, 25 minutes, just make sure um, you, you, you've explored, you've digested the passage together. Okay? So we'll have a time in small groups for around 20 minutes, and then we will all come here again. The par you've read the parable, you've, you've thought a little bit about it, you've warmed up, and then I'll bring some, I'll skim over the parable and bring some uh, concluding thoughts. And hopefully, by the end of this morning, a different way of teaching, a different way of, of, of learning it, of processing it, and hopefully it will be even more um, I hope that this uh, time, this small exercise um, was somehow helpful for you to, to just, yeah, warm up, have the, the parable there, um, um, 
and, um, and, and hopefully, through, so I will go through some concluding thoughts and uh, hopefully I will say many things that you already said in your groups and also hopefully I will say many new things that you haven't explored yet. I know that 20 minutes just go very fast, but yeah, for the sake of time, I hope this was a different exercise and, and now we are very fresh to, to hear um, the rest of the, 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 the parable. I do want us to really make this exercise uh, today for us to try as much as possible to be in the skin of those listeners um, in first century and try to really picture what's happening there and interpret what might have crossed their minds as Jesus is telling that parable and what were they, what they were automatically understanding that Jesus was meaning uh, by that. But the parable, and many times we just read a parable as it is, as the start. Sometimes we have our subtitle, parable, and then we, uh, we start reading it. But there's many times a context uh, for that parable. So we, we, we should read maybe a bit before what was happening before. And in this case, we see that Jesus was having a conversation with a group of people. And a law expert or a lawyer, I might have used two expressions that I find in the Bible, but he stands up and he, 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 he questions Jesus. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? The first question that the lawyer asked Jesus is a bit of a stupid question. Because what can you do to inherit eternal life? By nature inheritance is not something that you do by nature is a gift that a family member gives to another family member so if you belong to a family or perhaps you were adopted into the family you are expected to receive that inheritance so by that time and they knew reading the scriptures the old testament and all they knew they served a god that was opening the doors of his kingdom of eternal life to his people. They knew if they would be faithful and belong to this, the people of God, they would, eternal, they would inherit eternal life. Eternal life was waiting for them. But what must I do to inherit that eternal life? The, the, probably the expert was so concerned with the legalistic things, with the things that he must do, that he puts a question like that. Or in other words, can a man justify himself before God? He was concerned to have this question answered. And we see that Jesus did not answer his question. Probably Jesus paused, thought a little bit, took the imaginary dust out of his pen so he could have a few more seconds to calm down. It's a stupid question, but let's go. What does the law say? How do you read it? And then the man answers and answers correctly, Jesus said. 
Jesus, in fact, there is another episode when someone asked Jesus, how do you, how do you um, sum the law? What's the summary of the whole law? And Jesus says, love the, God, your, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. So this man probably knew Jesus' summary before, and he answers correctly. And Jesus says, yes, you've answered correctly. So Jesus is kind of saying, you know, you can actually do something to inherit eternal life. But if you con you're so concerned on doing something, this is what you must do. You must love your God with all your heart, with all your mind and strength. You must love Him every day, all the time, consistently. You must love your neighbor unfailingly. So yes, you must meet this standard, you must jump this high if actually you want to inherit eternal life. Probably the expert of the law or not, but as we already understood, it's a standard impossible to meet. We've all at some point failed towards God or towards a friend or a family member. We've all failed. You know, in the Olympics games, about to start, they have to, I don't know the name in English, but they have to jump that high, the bar. You know, I think they have three attempts at a certain high. If they, keep, if they touch the bar and it falls, then they are out of it. We've done, we've failed towards God. We've not been able to love Him and love the others consistently. So many times, we are not, uh, we are un unqualified. We are out. But the lawyer probably is still fighting with his pride and not understanding it. Maybe he thought, hmm, maybe I can meet the standard of the loving God part. You know, if I go to the synagogue all the time, or at least every Saturday, if we come to the church all the time, if I give regularly my tithes, if I give to the poor, or if I give, if I pray a lot and I practice all the traditions, maybe that should me get straight with God. That's why he then makes a question, but who is my neighbor? Maybe he thought, okay, so maybe the God part, I can, I can do it, but um, maybe I need to solve the neighbor part. So who is my neighbor? Maybe this shouldn't be um, a big list that Jesus is going to give me. Maybe I'll be able to manage it because my neighbor will probably not be a Gentile, a non-Jew. Definitely not the Romans that are our invaders or the Samaritans that we dislike. Um, let me just rewind a bit. In case you don't know, Samaritans, they live in the same territory as that Jewish area, a bit more of north. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they were not in good terms at all. And it all comes back to a few centuries before, where when there was the first invasion of the Assyrians, they invaded the northern territory, they took the educated and the rich people to their, to their land, and they kept the, the poor, uh, fragile people there. They intermarried with, with people from the outside. They start worshipping other idols. It came to a point where they said, we our holy temple is no longer Jerusalem, but it's in Mount Gerizim, so a different area. So there was now two different places where they should worship their God. 
when after the Babylonians, when they wanted to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans, not recognizing Jerusalem, was the place to worship. They sent, they killed pigs and they put dead pigs in the area they wanted to consecrate the temple. So they made the place a mess. So you can see there's a lot of historical background. They were not in good terms. Definitely a neighbor is not my, a Samaritan is not my neighbor, he thought. So who is my neighbor? I think I can manage that list. So Jesus goes on and tells him a parable. So he doesn't answer his question again, but he goes and Jesus tells a parable. And you've read this parable um, this morning. In verse, so there is this guy traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, a 27-kilometer um, way, not an easy way. They had to come down bumpy road. It was known to be a dangerous road, and this man is assaulted. Probably he offered some resistance because the, 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 the text tells us that he was beaten, his clothes were stripped away, so something happened there, and the thieves, they just took uh, everything and beat him so hard that he was dead. They're half dead, unconscious, naked by the side of the road. And so Jesus says, a priest comes down the road. In the temple in Jerusalem, the temple was served by three kinds of people. You had the priests, the teachers, the masters. They would be part of the higher class. They would be the one leading and teaching on the people and making and dealing with the law. Then you have another class, the Levites, or in other words, the assistants to the priests. You find that also in, in some Bible translator, translations. And then you have laymen, people that would just deal with the day-to-day -day logistics. But Jesus starts with saying, a priest comes down the road, and he looks, and he sees the, the man, and he passed on the other side. So priests, they were known to be very wealthy. They had money, they had resources. So definitely, a journey that long, 25, 27 kilometers, they would not probably be walking doing uh, that journey. So they would most probably afford to have their own ride, a horse or a donkey. So this priest could have well transported the man into, uh, into the back of his animal, but he doesn't do it. One of the questions was, what might have gone through the priest's mind as he sees someone there in order for him not to do something about it? He struggled with something. First, the victim was stripped. No clothes, and he was naked. Uh, naked, no clothes, and he was unconscious, was not able to speak. So there was no way for the priest to identify who was he dealing with? No clothes. He, he did not know. Um, they could understand by the way people were, um, uh, what they would wear if they were you know, rich people or poor people or even the regions they, they, they would come from. And especially if someone could talk and they could understand their accent. I'm sure in your country you understand where people come from, what region, just by the way they talk. But this guy is there. He cannot speak. He's unconscious. He's naked. So there's no way the priest can know uh, who, he's, uh, who, who, who is that guy. If he was a fellow Jew, especially a law-abiding Jew, then the priest would have the responsibility to help someone. But what if the victim was a Gentile, was an Egyptian, 
or a Greek or a Roman or a Samaritan, then by law, the priest, he had no obligation to help that man. So he started thinking about it. Should I do something? Should I not? But the law says, what if? What if? Better not. More, if the wounded man was actually dead, I mean, he was a cautious, he didn't know if he was dead. And if the priest would touch a dead man, according to the law as well, he would be um, ceremonially defiled, ceremonially unclean, according to the law. So if defiled, also according to the law, he had to go back to Jerusalem and go through a a week-long process of purification, he would not be able to work during that week. He would not be able to receive his money, eat any food, lose a week of his life because he would be um, ceremonially defiled because he touched a dead man. So with all this complex thought in his mind, with all these what-ifs, with all these uncertainties, the verdict was, I'll pass to the other side. A wounded man was totally neglected. If no one came after him, most probably that man would die there. And the priests knew that. But because of all the struggles in his mind, because of all the what-ifs, he decided to go to the other side. Wealthy people like him They also didn't usually travel alone. They would probably travel in groups, most probably with other assistants, in order to have more protection. The priest did not do anything, and we are told that the group that was with the priest probably also did not do anything. They all passed to the other side of the road. Verse 32. Then a Levite come. Levites were assistants to the priests in the temple. So this particular Levite, he would probably either know that the priest was ahead or probably this Levite was someone that was part of that group of, of, of the priest. I actually, I think this is what makes sense. Not like one priest comes and after 10 minutes a Levite comes. I think probably this Levite was part of that group. Maybe people were, would read things like that. But so the priest, if the Levite had been with the group or had seen what had happened, the priest had set a precedent for the Levites that would probably ease his conscience. Should a Levite upstage a priest? Did the Levite think he understood the law better than the priests? Because if the priest did not do anything to safeguard himself from all those things of the law, would the Levite do something? Probably he would have to meet the priest in Jericho. And he would be probably insulting the priest because he did something that the priest did not do. If others did not help, why would I? Thought the Levite. If others passed to the other side, why would I? So sadly, the Levite also decided to cross to the other side of the road. And he left the wounded man alone there to his fate. 
But there comes a third character. And now Jesus chose very carefully and very intentionally who he wanted to be the hero of this story. And to the surprise of the listeners, Jesus says, there comes a Samaritan. Again, imagine Jesus telling to a group of Jews that in this story, all the Jews mentioned did not act correctly, but the Samaritan was the hero to the story. I don't know, in your country, in your culture, imagine if in Iran this story is being told that the, the people in Iran, they all acted incorrectly, but then one of the spiritual leaders was the, the hero of the story. How would people perceive that? Imagine in South Africa, Jesus telling the story to a group of black people and saying that this particularly, particular white guy, farmer, actually was the only hero in the story. That plot twist might have created some, some difficult thoughts among them. Imagine the reaction. What, <laughs> what is Jesus telling us about? But Jesus says, a Samaritan passes by, verse 33. And as he traveled, he came there and saw, and saw him. He had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Unlike the two other travelers on the story, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. The Samaritan sees these guys and he had compassion on him. We don't see the Samaritan struggling with his thoughts, with the complexity of what ifs. But he says he had compassion for this guy. And compassion led him to action. The Samaritan could have felt awful. Overwhelmed with pity for this poor guy. But still cross to the other side. The Samaritan could have said, let me pray for you. I feel your pain. I pray but then move on on his journey. But no. The Samaritan did everything that was in his power to help this unknown man that he saw on the road. He used all of his available resources. So he administered first aid. There was this probably wine to, to, to clean and disinfect the wood, oil to hydrate it. Then he put, he strapped some cloth around him, probably took some of his clothes or something to, you know, cover this man. He put him in the, on, on, um, on his donkey, says, so he spent his time, he stopped. We don't know what was his schedule, what was his plans, but he stopped. He, he carried this guy. He spent his time, his energy, and his money, and he take him to an inn. There was also not an inn um, in the middle of nowhere. So the Samaritan drives this guy to the nearest town in Jericho, and he risks his own life by taking him to that inn. He's in enemy territory now. 
he enters a town riding probably a Jew on the back of his horse. What would the people of the town think? But he take him there. He takes the man to the inn. Maybe he was just expected, you know, to stop by the edge of Jericho, drop the man there, and then go his way. But he enters the town. He could have just got into the inn, dropped the man there, throw a few coins, and go back. But he stayed there overnight. He made sure that at least for the first night, this wounded man was well accommodated, and he would, he would be there. And as he left, he gave the guy two denarii, probably a week or two uh, worth of food and lodging. And then he said, when I come back, when I'll come back to enemy territory, I will pay the remaining. But please take care of this guy. And he took responsibility for him. Now, as, as the Samaritan leaves the next day, as he leaves the inn, what happened to him? Was there people outside waiting to grab him? Was he going to also be beaten or killed by, the, by their enemies? They would not go along. They, would, they did not go along with one another. But we do not know. The story is open-ended, and we can only imagine what might or not have happened before. But, moved with compassion, the Samaritan exposed himself to potential violence. He did everything he had in his power and he risked his own life because he was moved with compassion. Kenneth Bailey says this, the saving agent in the story, the Samaritan, he breaks in from the outside and he extends a costly demonstration of unexpected love to the wounded man. The saving agent of the story breaks in from outside and extends a costly demonstration of unexpected love to the wounded man. And in the process, Jesus talks about himself and he's interpreting the life-changing power of costly love that would climax at his own cross. We can see Jesus in this story. We can see the gospel, the good news in this story. It's not about how can man justify themselves to win God over. It's about God that was moved with compassion. God that loved the world so much that he sent his only son from to, to come as a man, to deal with us, not at the distance, not from the other side, not just having pity on us, but he came to us and Jesus himself gave everything he had. Jesus himself not only risked his life, but he gave his own life so that we, wounded, unconscious, half dead, dead by our sins, would be taken care by and could be and live again for another day. Jesus is talking about himself. And Jesus, moved by compassion, show us and 
ethical example that we should all follow him as well. So the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus does not answer his question. But instead, Jesus shifts a bit the things and he reflects on the larger question. And Jesus asks him, who became a neighbor to this man? To whom must you, to whom must I, to whom must we become as a neighbor to someone else? And the answer is to anyone in need. At a great cost, the Samaritan became a neighbor to the wounded man. The neighbor is the Samaritan, not the woman, the wounded man. So in this conversation, the lawyer has a chance to see that he cannot justify himself before God because what he is challenged to do is beyond his capacity. But at the same time, he is told as he listened to this parable that Jesus asks, asked of him and asked of us a noble ethical model to follow. Jesus says on verse 37, Go and do likewise. At the same time that Jesus challenged that man and those who are listening, Jesus is challenging us today. Go live the kingdom in this way. Compassion reaches beyond our own what-ifs, our own complications. Compassion reaches beyond our resources. It reaches beyond our plans. It reaches beyond our schedule and our own needs. The kingdom of God has a universal neighborhood. The kingdom of God has a universal neighborhood. And this is very radical. This is easier said than done for sure. But this is how Jesus described what compassion, what love is. And this is how actually Jesus acted in his lifetime here on earth. Jesus was moved out compassion and showed mercy to us in a very practical way. And he tells us, go and do likewise. In Hosea 6, God says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know, more, to know me more than I want burn offerings. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. In other words, God says, I want you to move from law to things of do's and don'ts and move to mercy. I want you to stop trying to win God over by doing mechanical, routinely duties, but in contrast, leave outpouring costly demonstrations and acts of love towards your neighbor. That's kingdom-like. That's reflecting Jesus because Jesus did the same to us. So how can I, how can you become a neighbor to someone today? Who do you know that is in need? 
Who do you know that you can actually help in the practical way? Who do you know that you can reach out and be moved with compassion beyond your own needs, beyond your own schedule, and you become a neighbor to someone else and show them love in, in such a practical way? How can you invest your skills, your gifts? How can you invest the time and the place you are, the here and now, for the time being, either in Lisbon or wherever you come from? But how can you invest those skills, those resources, those things that God gave you? How can you invest and become a neighbor? In a ministry, uh, some uh, church ministry, how can you invest your time and your skills in the church ministry. How can you invest your time at the Lisbon Project is a way, a strategy that we have to become a neighbor. Or in any other organization or something that you recognize, that you know of, how can you be involved and invest and love in a very practical way? So I'm going to pray and I will ask the team to come. And as we will spend... This next couple of minutes in worship, may this just be a time where we sing the words, but at the same time, we pray these words and we ask God to speak to us, to remind us, to bring people, to bring ideas into our minds. And we ask God, God, help me to be good to someone today. Help me to extend my love to someone. Help me to be more like you to someone else so that they can know Jesus, so that they can live another day, so that they can have another opportunity to know you. And by the way, we love one another. They will know we are Jesus' disciples. So, Father God, we thank you because your word brings us um, so much. Your word is so rich and you um, took time and you took care to... Um, to explain your kingdom to all of us. We thank you because even if we live 2,000 years after, and even if we haven't seen you yet face to face, and even if we don't fully understand all the, the culture of biblical times, Father, we thank you because we've had 2,000 years of reflection uh, upon your word. And, and in these days, we have resources and we have um, means to, to understand better of your word. But above all, Father, we know that we have the same Holy Spirit, the same power that conquered the grave, the same power that moved uh, Jesus to in acts of compassion. Is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us today, Father. We just want to be aware of your Spirit. We just want to be, yeah, conscience, awake, and we want to be... Uh, sensitive to hear what you want from us to be used fully by you so that we extend your kingdom to our neighborhood so that we became become neighbors to the people around us help us father this can only come from you so we just ask help us to be open vessels and receive all the power of your spirit in order for us to bless the others around us. We ask and we agree as a church in Jesus' mighty name.